Well, again, good morning. It's, it's kind of fitting, day after July 4, kind of hot. Friend walking up the stairs said, you know, sort of old school, feel closer to our forebears, sweating it out. My granddad practiced law for 55 years here in Houston, and uh, he would wear a three-piece wool suit up downtown in like the 12th story or 16th story, no AC. They would keep the windows open. I mean, nuts. <laughs> Punched a guy out in the courtroom, like so much tougher than I am. I'll never be that tough. It's probably why I left law school after year one. I just realized, I, I, I claim it was the call to go preach, but it was probably that plus a combination of just realizing I'm just not that tough. Um, that was not on the script. Okay, I better get moving here. So disclaimer, I am going to keep things shorter than normal, um, for which everyone said amen. Amen. Uh, I had here that I was, the first point was the lion's share of the sermon. Hopefully now they'll kind of be equal. The first one will still be longer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the high points and blaze, pun intended, blaze through. Um, so forgive me if some of, you, some of you exegetes out there are like scratching your chin going, he didn't cover every point. That's right. Um, and you'll thank me for it. Okay. Well, welcome again. Uh, my name's Taylor Entz. Drew forgot his name. I forgot mine. My name's Taylor. So glad to be here. I'm a church planting resident. Uh, we're hoping to plant Sojourn Galleria in, sometime in October. We've already started our, our neighborhood parish there in the Galleria area, and we're, we're just blessed. We're excited. We, we thank you guys for helping make that possible. I love that this is a church planting church. Um, so we are doing a, a series on First Timothy, and I've been blessed to uh, be allowed to preach two weeks in a row. So that's, it's a pleasure to be back, back at it this week. Last week, so we are preaching through the household of God, the church as the household of God, as the home where God resides through Christ. Um, a little louder. Okay, good. Um, this house, this home of God, this people of God is where our identity gets formed as a, as a people of God, and it's a foundation of grace that this house is built on. The work, not of, not of us trying to get to God, but the work of God coming to us and making a way to him through his son, Jesus Christ. So last week I preached on, um, what did I preach on last week? On the purpose of the church. We were in N3, transitioning into chapter four, looked at the purpose of the church. And this week we're gonna look at the high call to godliness that Paul gives to Timothy and really to the leaders of the church and really to all believers. The high call to godliness. So marked, how we are to be marked by godliness as just as mere Christians, as new creations in Christ. Um, so that's where we'll be. I said here for the next 30 minutes, maybe for the next 20. Okay. I want to start out with, um, a quote that you, most of you probably heard from former three-term president, Teddy Roosevelt. He said this, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Now this life is a wrestling match or as a gladiatorial combat, this metaphor, 
It's just pure Teddy. If you've read anything about him or know anything about him, um, I highly recommend Edmund Morris's three volumes on him. I've just read the first two, but they're excellent. Teddy saw life as a massive and ebullient um, exertion for a worthy cause. And so did Paul, which is why these words that I just read from Teddy really accurately sort of capture the tone and the timbre of, of Paul's message, of his command to Timothy and, and through Timothy to us. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are both free and compelled and thus commanded to live a life of, here it is, of agony. A word Paul uses here in verse 10, which is translated strive in the ESV. Because of what Christ has done, because he's purchased us at the cost of his own bone and blood and soul, we are to live godly, says Paul. And to this end, he says, we toil and strive. And to the degree that we don't do that, to the degree, here's the thrust of the sermon, here's the thrust of this text, to the degree that we don't toil and strive and pour everything we are, utterly devote ourselves to godliness that we have been given and gifted in Christ, to whatever end we don't pour everything we have in our lives into that, to that end we have veered off of the call of Christ. We have veered off of the path that Paul calls us to here. Paul, maybe more than any one of us, understood the freedom that Christ brings and the fact that he could not achieve his own salvation. But also, more than anyone, what? Did he just rest on his laurels and say, man, I'm just going to go take a boat to the Caribbean and hang out now. I'm, I'm secure. No, more than any of us, probably, he strove and toiled because he understood the freedom that Christ brings and the high call of God. So, three points this morning. Again, the first one's going to be well-shortened. I want to look at this high call to godliness from three angles. Point one, too hard. Point two, too soft. Point three, just right. (laughs) You knew it was coming. No, he's not going there. No, he, oh yeah, he did. Okay, too hard, too soft, just right. So let's look at too hard first. This is sort of the meat potatoes and, and the next two points are kind of the dessert. So too hard. When we look at what Paul talks about in this book and at this point where he says, toil and strive for these things, for this godliness, everything you have, devote yourself to it, we might kind of pull back and say, in our culture and in our flesh, say, and then maybe in our misunderstanding of grace, say, that's just too hard. It it seems like legalism. It's too tough. Ah, I don't know. It seems like religion. Well, let me read verses 6 through the first part of 10 again. You know what? For sake of time, I'm just going to read the first part of 10. Verse 9, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Okay, and really everything he said in the book is loaded into that. To this end we toil and strive. I want to just camp out for a few minutes on these words. Toil, um, it's really, it really means hard labor. I mean, it means just what it sounds like. It means working as hard as you can. Imagine work at a labor camp. You're sweating, and imagining sweating isn't too terribly difficult right now as you wade yourself with cards. Toil, hard labor. Strive, like I said, it comes from the word agonizomai, from which we get our word agony. So it doesn't necessarily mean agony, or else it would have been translated that way, but we get our word from that. So there's just labor and exertion and pain involved in a straining now, this theme is, um, is one of Paul's favorites, and I want to just read from a sampling. 
uh, of his letters where this, these, either of these two words or themes occurs. When he speaks of others, he says, we ask you, brothers, this is from all over the corpus of his writing in the New Testament. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Another book, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Therefore, my beloved brothers, next book, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord you, your labor, your labor is not in vain. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, before moving to how he speaks about others, fight the good fight, that's that word agonizomai, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then speaking of himself, I won't read them all, from 2 Thessalonians to start, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And then finally, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight. There's that word, the fight, agonizomai. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And the words of our Lord himself, using the same word, agonizomai, he says in Luke 13, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Okay, so... I hope I've made my case. Paul says it clearly here. It's one of his favorite themes throughout his letters. Because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's called us to, freely by faith, our call as Christians is to strive with everything we have, to see godliness developed in ourselves and in each other, in those around us, as we, as we share life together. So Paul in verse 11, if we jump ahead a little bit after that verse, he says, command and teach these things. And here I'm going to be quite brief. I just want to focus in this, in this short phrase here on the word command. He tells Timothy, his son in the faith, the pastor, the elder at this church, probably in Ephesus, he says, command these things. They're not optional. This isn't, I just don't want you to think, like, this is for just the pastors, or this is for just Timothy or Paul, the crazy Christians. No. Paul says, command these things to the church. This is what... This is, mere, this is to be normal Christianity. And again, what I want you to get, the deposit I want for you to get, friends, is that straining with all we have, like a, like a builder works with everything he has toward finishing a house, um, like a mother works with everything she has to care for her children and to nourish them, like a, like a dad works with everything he has to bring home the bacon, right? Um, like an athlete, an Olympic athlete strains with everything he has toward the prize, and we'll come back to that. Um, we are to have Christ and his kingdom and the great reward that is him and the new heavens and new earth as in our sights, as our prize, and everything that we're not devoting in our lives toward straining and toiling toward that end, we ought to cut off. It's a high call. I can't, I'm not going to tell you this week that it was an easy text for me. It, it really, really challenged me. Um, in verse 12, just touch on this. He moves on and says, he says, set the believers an example. 
And that, that word means exactly what it, what it says. It's set the believers a pattern to follow. May the way that you live, Timothy, be such a way that people can find no flaw in it, and they say, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to live just like that. And in that life, I see the life of Christ. There's, no, there's nothing tainting it. And how does he, he kind of enumerates what that looks like. He says, in speech, just what it sounds like. We're going to have to roll. But in speech, just in everyday language. In conduct, which means just the way you live normally, not when you're gathering for one hour of worship, um, not when you're in parish uh, gathering on Wednesday or Sunday night or whenever it is you meet, um, not when other people are around, but just the way that you live. And then I just want to hunker down for a couple minutes on this. He talks about, he says in speech, in conduct, and then he says in love. And the word he uses here for love is agapeo. And there are four main words in, the, in, the, in classical Greek for love. We, we have a few too. But this is the one that's used of God's love for us in sending his own only son to be crushed so that we could be freed through no good of our own. This is that love. And Paul says to Timothy, let this characterize your life. It's, it's a love that when it's used in classical Greek, it's used in intimate relationships. It suggests intimacy. And... If we understand, if the penny, the theological penny drops that we are, um, we've been made a body, even if I don't know, I don't know most of you, and I don't, know mo- I don't know most of you very well, and I don't know a lot of you, but if I know that you have been redeemed by Christ, I ought to feel a special love for you because you are part of the family, and because I know that Christ has given me his very self, I ought to give myself to you and to those that are outside the fold, and we ought to, that, that ought to characterize our lives. Um, Paul says to Timothy, you know, I, this is one thing that he's saying ought to characterize the lives of our leaders and of our elders. And we've, we've talked about that in our teaching. We've, we've put elders up here, elder candidates up here, um, and, and said if you have anything against them, you know, let, let Brandon or Drew know. We want, we want them to be leading us, to be shepherding us. It's a, it's a huge call. What Paul's saying here is that they ought to be loving men. I know a lot of a fair amount of men that have great theological acumen. They have great minds, um, great intelligence. Maybe they've made a lot of money. They're very successful. None of those things impress God. You can have all those things. You can be incredibly theologically adept, very smart, and, and wealthy, doing well in life, and be so far from God and actually hate God. Those things don't impress Paul. What impresses Paul, and this is the same word he uses in 1 Corinthians 13, is love. Are the men that we're putting up before us to shepherd us, to lead us, um, are they loving? Does love characterize their lives? I know, again, a lot of men who, they say they love the scriptures, but they're just mean as snakes. Let me tell you, friends, that man is not godly. Does that man love his wife? Does he love God? Does he desire to press into who God is? Does he love God with his whole heart? Is he dissatisfied with his love for his wife and for God? If not, he has no place as an elder. Um, and as I poured over these qualifications this week, again, very convicted, and I, I'm, I'm not the man that loves his wife and loves God as I ought. I know that. And, and I think each of our elders and elder candidates would probably say the same thing. But this is, again, it's a call to all of us. It's a call to all of us. Okay, fast forwarding here. Before I move to the, to the, the next point, and much shorter point, 
I want to look at verse 14. What what does Paul say to Timothy a little farther down? He says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect. I want to focus on that word neglect for just a few minutes. Don't neglect your gift. I I shared this at our midweek meeting with uh, the new worship leader that's going to actually be leading our church as the worship leader for the first time next, next week, J.J., and he said, yeah, it's just, like, it's just like in music, like a musician. Like if you, you have a gift, but nobody expects that because you have a gift, you can just use it whenever you want to and it's going to be there for you. Like if you don't use it, if you neglect it, it kind of goes away. Like it falls into disrepair. It definitely gets worse. And that's what Paul's implying here. We get gifts. Each of us get gifts. As we are saved, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to his body, to each person. Maybe one, maybe more than one. But he's saying, look, if you don't exercise this and if you just neglect it, it's going to fall into disrepair. So it's not like a toy in a box. It's like a knife or it's like a, uh, it's like a musical gift. Uh, Dodds jumped in and said, it's like at the Astrodome. I was like, what? It's like, yeah, if you don't use it, look, look, what's going to turn out like? It's going to be nasty. Roof's going to cave in, right? The other thing is gifts aren't for you primarily. They're for the church, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, right? They're for us. Your gifts are for me. My gifts are for you. As I'm using, the, hopefully, the gift of teaching now to, to bless you, to edify you, to, to feed you with God's word. Um, so you ought to be using your gifts to feed me and to feed and to build up others. And when you don't, it insults me and it insults us and it harms us because you're keeping your gift that God gave you from, from edifying us. Um, more than that, though, it's an insult to God when we neglect our gift. He died to give you this gift. And he doesn't just scatter and broadcast. He specifically gives his gifts out to each one of us and selects us and says, I want you to have this gift. I want you to have this gift. I want you to have this gift. And just to be indifferent about it, to be unconcerned about it, as one dictionary defines this term, is it's an insult It's an insult to God who died to give us these things, to image the body of Christ, to build his body up in faith and love. So it's a really big deal. So he died to give it to us. He died to give it to us to bless others and to advance the gospel and to encourage. And then our response is just kind of, eh. Now, how does God feel about this, eh, response about when we neglect our gift? Well, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, in the parable of the stewards, how does the man who neglects his talent that he's given by the master, how is he treated? What happens to him at the end of the parable? He buries his treasure. He does nothing with it. He neglects it. And what? The master comes back and he calls him a wicked servant and he orders him cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not a happy picture, friends. That is not a happy picture. Um... It's a picture of isolation, of disorientation, and of eternal regret with no, with no chance of repairing, with no chance of repenting, which is why there's gnashing. There's eternal, eternal regret. So using our gifts, finding out what they are, which is where I think the laying on of the hands comes in. I don't have time to unfold it all, but what does Paul mean here when he says the gift that you receive through the laying on of hands, the elders, Well, in part, I think what it means is, again, sort of like we've been harping on, like I harped on last week and as we've been harping on in weeks past, we are to operate as individual members as a body. Christ saved us as individuals to be part of his body. 
And a lot of our discovery of what our gifts are, it's okay if you don't know yours, but find it out. And a lot of the way you're going to do that is in community. Here in this community on Sundays, sharing your life with each other in parish gatherings, and then throughout the week in, in community, you probably, it's really hard sometimes to accurately discern what your gifts are. And that can be a sign of humility. But as we're in community, asking one another and being purposeful about saying, what do you, what do you see in me? What, what do you see the Lord's given me? How do I bless you? What seems to come easy for me? And in our parishes, really focusing, if some of you parishes, you've done this already, Sojourn Galleria Parish, we're about to start this process, but discerning, really putting in systems to discern our gifts. Super important. So lastly, before we advance to point, to point two, what, is, what does Paul say? He doesn't just say toil and strive, but what? He doesn't just say toil and strive because working hard and sweating and being miserable is where it's at. No, he's not a masochist. What does he say? Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. What? Because we set our hope on the living God. Or as the ESV says, because we have our hope set. It's not something we just wish for. It's a hope, it's, it's a hope that we're confident about. We expect it. It's coming. We're looking toward it. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, on the remaking of all things, on seeing him face to face, right? Who is the savior of all people? And that leads us to point two, much shorter point. So all that stuff, and I had more, and you're blessing me for not giving more. But these really hard commands that Paul gives, and my life, my life doesn't line up with this call, but it's uncompromising. It's what Paul says is part of, ought to be a rational response to what Jesus has done for us. Um, but if that's too hard, then the next point, what Paul talks about in this verse is too soft. A lot of people, they hear the gospel, they hear this bit that says, God who is the savior of all people, no exceptions. No exceptions. It's too soft. And remember, Paul was writing to the ancient uh, Jew. And, and everyone in his, in his milieu was religious. And everyone was trying to get to God by doing things, to clean themselves up in some way, to climb the ladder to heaven. And Paul, Paul just says the gospel is the exact opposite. Christ climbed a ladder down, and he came and he lived the life, the phrase that we're familiar with probably. He lived the life that we are supposed to live but can't, kept the law perfectly for us, and died the death that we deserve for our law-breaking. And anyone can come, Paul says. Anyone. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or a barbarian, man, woman, child, what color you are. It doesn't matter what your former creed was. If you recognize that the gospel is good news and that Christ fulfilled for us what we could not fulfill, every requirement that God gives, then it's for all people. It's for everybody. This was scandalous. And as you probably know, in the New Testament, it's act, that word scandalon, scandal, is actually used to describe the gospel. It's, a, it's an absolute scandal. And if the way that we're preaching the gospel with our words and our actions in our lives doesn't, if we don't have the reaction, if we don't see that reaction from people where they draw back and go, that, that can't, it's too soft. Yeah, it may seem too hard when I look at verses like this, but if I, when I get the gospel, I recoil and I say, that's a scandal, it's just too soft. If we're not getting that reaction, if we're not having that reaction, in part, and seeing that, we're probably not preaching the gospel. We're probably, back to last week, we're probably preaching a Christ plus. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus paid it all. Come to him as you are. And this toiling and striving, it's just a response of gratitude. It's not the way we get to know God. It's not the way we get salvation. It's not the way we get our record cleared. Not at all. 
too soft. I was, uh, before we move to our third point, I was, I was watching, it's a confession, all right? I'm married, so I can say this. I was watching HDTV yesterday a little bit. I love that, I love that channel. Um, what's the Chip Ingram show, Robin? Fixer Upper, love that show. Any fans of Fixer Upper in here? Man, you don't have to raise your hand. One guy's like, whoop. Don't judge me. Um, you can judge me, it's okay. I love Fixer Upper. Not that show, sorry. Yard Crashers. I just had to give a shout out to Fixer Upper. Partly because it takes place in Texas. Um, yard Crashers. Okay, so guy comes in, what he does, the, the plot of the show is, every time he comes in, he's a contractor, professional contractor. He goes to a Lowe's or Home Depot, um, a DIY store, walks in with a TV crew, and just finds someone that looks desperately lost. As, like if, if he were walking in with me, I would be that guy, just kind of like, because we're like new homeowners, praise God, and I just, I'm overwhelmed, you know? So um, it's called DIY, but I sit there like asking people for help. It's kind of not supposed to be that way, but. He comes in, finds a lost person, and he says, literally yesterday he came in, so what he does, he just changes, two days, totally renovates their backyard for free. Amazing, like patios, fountains, just wonderland. So he comes in yesterday and he says to this older lady, he said, um, can I help? Uh, are, you, are you finding everything okay? You need help? She goes, no, I'm fine. He goes, you sure? And you know, you know, on the other side of the screen, you're like, say yes. <laughs> and he, and she go, he goes, you sure? And she goes, yep, nope, no help. And you're just like, oh! And he passes her on by and he goes and finds another couple. And I just, light came on, like that's the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. Yeah, Yod Crouch's guy, right? That's how a pastor thinks. It's sick, all right? Just to let you in. Everything's the gospel. I'm always constantly saying that to Robin, like, oh, I get it. But really, I mean, God comes by to us in Christ, and as we herald this news to other people, we're the yard crasher guy. Jesus comes by, and he comes down out of heaven, out of his riches, and he says, you need help? I can take care of everything for you. Not only am I going to renovate your backyard for free, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I am going to restore creation and invite you into that eternal party that we're toiling and striving for, for free, and I'm going to take care of your debt that you owe God on the cross. I'm going to endure the hell and the punishment you deserve. You, you justly deserve for your rebellion against God. I'm going to take that for you. You sure you don't need help? I'm fine. To say no to that shows us the measure of our own lostness. And any of us who say yes to that, friends, Paul is clear, we say yes because God comes and opens our hearts and opens our eyes. We can't take credit for that. We can't take credit for that. Which is why we can freely broadcast the gospel. Because if it's a rejection of the gospel, that's God's work. If it's, if, it's an, if it's an acceptance, that's God's work. It's not my convincingness. If you come to Christ now, if you're encouraged now, it's not me. It's the Lord working on your heart so I can relax and just preach the gospel. And so we ought to do in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. So that's the two soft. Now, I want to end with just right. I am cooling down a little bit. I hope you are too. I'm glad the fans are still going. So sometimes the gospel might seem too hard. We, we have a high call to godliness. Our lives are to be marked by this godliness that Paul pushes into here. But also, when we begin to get the gospel, when we get it again anew every day, and when we share it with others, we often ought our own, ourselves and ought to see this reaction in other people, that's just too soft. It's too easy. I don't have to do anything. That's right. You don't have to do anything. 
just trusting Christ. That's what faith is. It's the actual, it's not a work. It's something given to us by God, and it's the way of saying, I can't do it. Faith is the way of saying, I can't do it, you did it. So too hard, too soft, and finally just right. The cross alone shows us both the hardness and the softness of God. That in a sense, the gospel is too hard, and it's too soft. Um, first, it shows us the hardness, the severity. God takes our sins so seriously. Often when we look at the cross and when we think the gospel, the cross, as we ought to do, it's an expression of how much God loves me. We ought to think that. But the cross isn't just an expression of how much God loves me. The cross is an expression of God's justice and of how much God hates my sin and of what he has to do to punish it. It's right there for us to never ever forget. And when sin is but a distant memory 10 million years from now, friends, and we are all at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and new earth, Christ will still have the holes in his hands and feet to remind us of the cost of our sin. God can't just, because he's love, he can't just disregard our sin. He's love, he's just, he's holiness itself. It has to be dealt with. But here's the softness. The cross also shows, as you know, God's softness. Because he deals with our sin on Christ as our representative, he can bring us in close. If we trust in Christ, he wipes our sin clean. Christ pays for it, and we are taken care of. We are, we are accounted as perfect, as righteous, as paid for, and we are given the very heart of God to obey him. We are given Christ's own law-keeping, his perfect record. And therefore, God can be our father. He can take us up into his lap as my daughter is sitting there on the front row with, with her father-in-law, a grandfather-in-law, and with my wife, just totally enjoying their company so we can do and ought to do with the father. We can enjoy his compassion, his mercy, his goodness, his love because of the cross. Christ saves us freely, most freely, but to live for him, to devote, Paul says, to devote ourselves completely to toiling and agonizing, striving in that arena for him and toward the high call of Christ Jesus because of what's been given to us. And the terms are, Christ says, all of me, I'm giving all of me for all of you, not for part of you, for all of you. Follow me. There's no other call. Follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. On May 13th, 1940, Winston Churchill gave his first speech as Prime Minister to the House of Commons. All of Europe and perhaps all the world was in the brink of disaster, of falling into the, under the shadow of the Nazis and Hitler. And these words closed his address. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air. With all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny, never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. 
victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there's no survival. But I take my task with buoyancy and hope, Churchill said. Come then, let us go forward with our united strength. Just as that one man stood in the gap for all of Europe and for us and offered all of himself to save his people and to bring them to victory, so did Christ, but to an infinitely greater degree. Not only did civilization hang in the balance, so did our eternal souls and indeed all of creation, which was shrouded in the curse that our sin has caused. Because he secured our victory, we can toil and strive with a great and secure hope that will not fail. And friends, as I close, I just want to make a plea before I pray and just say that uh, if this has struck you as a believer and you want to come pray with someone, you want to be encouraged, you want to confess a sin, uh, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't said yes to him, yes, DIY guy, in the Home Depot store, in the Lowe's store, yeah, I need help. Badly. I believe that you came and lived the life that I can't live and died the death that I deserve. I, I want to trust in you. If that's you, or if, if that touches any part of you, as we take communion afterwards, please come find one of us. Please grab somebody that looks like they've been here a while. It doesn't mean they're a believer, but they probably are. Pray they are. Not all of us are, but a lot of us are. Not through our own good, but through the good of, of the Lord. So if that touches you, we just want to make it more plain. Um, let this time be a time where you just come and get prayer and get ministered to, okay? Let's pray.